Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Mastering the Room, brought to you by the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every episode on the show, we'll sit down with some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. They'll give us a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens and offer their tips for how you can not only get in the room, but master it just like they did. New episodes drop every other Monday, so be sure to subscribe to Mastering the Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening app may be. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating or review. Just a few seconds of your time can really help us spread the word and reach more listeners just like you. And if you want to learn more about GSPM, feel free to check out our website at www.gspm.gwu.edu. And now, without further ado, here's a brand new episode of Mastering the Room. Hello and welcome to Mastering the Room. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every week we take a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, guided by some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. This week on the show, we're joined by Mark Strand, an alumnus of, and more recently, a professor for the Legislative Affairs Program at GSPM, and a longtime veteran of the legislative branch who spent more than two decades working on both sides of Capitol Hill in a variety of leadership roles, including as Chief of Staff to Senator Jim Talent and Congressman Bill Lowry and Stan Paris, and as a Staff Director of the House Committee on small business. Sandwiched in between all those congressional stops, he also spent time as the Vice President of Government Affairs for the American Waterworks Company, the largest publicly held water utility in the United States. And since 2007, Mark has served as the President of the Congressional Institute, a nonprofit founded in 1987 that is dedicated to helping members of Congress better serve their constituents and helping their constituents better understand the operations of the national legislature. Oh, and he also wrote the book, literally, on how to survive inside Congress. So he's got plenty of good advice to share, and we're extremely fortunate to have him. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start at the beginning. We always start at the beginning on this show, as our listeners know. Uh, where does the story of, of Mark Strand begin? Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Kind of what, we, what was young Mark like I, as a kid? I grew up on Long Island, uh, out in Suffolk County, uh, which uh, people always forget that Long Island is a really long island, so it was uh, 60 miles outside the city. Uh, and I got my basic introduction to politics because my father used to read the New York Times editorial to us every night at dinner, uh, particularly James Reston was his favorite. And, uh, and so we were just always a very political family. Uh, our ideologies didn't always agree, but we were always talking about politics. And the first campaign I ever worked in was well, not really worked, but I was 12 years old handing out buttons for Hubert Humphrey at Long Island MacArthur's airport during a campaign rally. Huh. So you were in. So you were into this from like a, a very young age, which is, I think, different than a lot of our guests who who find politics a little bit later. Uh, but this was this was a, a presence in your life from from very young. Yeah, really, from the very beginning, I kind of knew I wanted to be involved in the, the process, and uh, and I've, I've basically stuck with it the whole time. I never really got outside the business. So what was your path into politics and government as a career? How do you figure out that not only is this something you want to be involved in, but this is something that you can actually get paid money to do and have a career doing? You know, it's interesting because that's exactly sort of the process that led up to it. In uh, 1980, at the age of 24, I ran for state assembly in New York. Oh, 
Uh, I think I was the only Republican in the entire country to lose in 1980. <laughs> uh, but but it was a good as a four-term incumbent, and I, I lost, as I think it was something like 52-48. Um, but I realized at that point, if I wanted to do this politics thing, I needed to get paid for it, because running for office without a salary is, is really difficult, even when you're 24. Uh, and so I um, called up a friend of mine from college, a guy named Chris Smith from New Jersey, who had just won a seat that had been held by a longtime incumbent uh, from New Jersey. And I said, what are you here? And he said, well, come down and I'll introduce you a few people. And he, he did. And I ended up getting my first job as an L.A. for a member of Congress from Michigan. So that's that's what brings you to D.C. How do you once you're there? Uh, once you're, you know, on the Hill as an L.A., how do you kind of go about breaking in and and, and, and really starting your path um, on the Hill and kind of moving forward from there? You know, it's interesting that I, and it's one of the things I've been working to correct uh, since I've been at the Congressional Institute. But really, when we start on the Hill, it was baptism by fire. You know, they throw you into the fire. And if you didn't burn, you, you survive to live another day. Uh, my first day in the office, they asked me to write this resolution. It was a really obscure thing, sort of like a motion to disapprove an action by the D.C. City Council. And, of course, I had no idea how to write a bill. So I found another version of this as someone had written on a different issue and plagiarized it, uh, wrote my own bill, uh, and it was fairly successful. So the first week I had already had introduced a bill. But it's but my advice to people, too, is you just always keep exploring and trying to find new things out. Uh, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more later, but one of the main things I learned about my experience, especially going to uh, uh, the Graduate School of Political Management after my congressional career was done, was that you never stop learning about Congress. Uh, the, the greatest experts in Congress learn something new almost every single day. And, uh, and that is the key to being successful on the Hill, is just keep learning and learning and understand you don't know it all, but at the same time that you can learn uh, you know, just tons of information. There's nothing lacking to find it out if you're curious enough. Yeah, you eventually, you know, you, you climb the ranks and, and become chief of staff to three different Republican members of Congress. Um, and there's a, there's a long climb to the top of, of that particular hill. What was that path like for you? And, and what were kind of the, you mentioned one, but what were the, were there other big lessons that you learned along the way? Obviously you've written an entire book about it, but you know, distill it, <laughs> distill it down for us. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things about moving up on the hill is filling vacuums, which means doing the things that other people don't want to do. Uh, you just pick up wherever there's a hole in the office and you start to accumulate more and more value to the, to the member. Uh, this is, I think, the most important thing to remember is that, you know, trustworthiness is important because they measured it in your integrity, that, which means, in short, you'll do what you say you'll do. And then your competency. And, you know, people either have integrity or they don't, but you can become more competent every single day. And so becoming more trustworthy to your boss means becoming more competent in what you do. And so that was the, the thing that helped me the most. The other side was to not shy away from the political end of things. Uh, I had been working for a Michigan congressman who uh, ended up eventually losing uh, his primary. But before that, I had also started getting involved in local politics in Virginia. I was the Mount Vernon district chairman. Mm. And uh, I had, was on the state central committee in Richmond. And when my boss from Michigan lost, local congressman Stan Paris came to me and said, Mark, I have an opening. I'd like you to be my chief of staff and press secretary. Uh, and that was mostly because of the work I'd done outside of the Congress working in local politics. 
since and this is one of the most important things I also discovered is that while having run for office and lost was a great experience for me, I, I got it out of my system. But at the same time, I, I was able to empathize with what, with what the members of Congress are going through in the very important thing about getting reelected or getting elected in the first place. Uh, and so having a, your hand in politics uh, increases your value to the member because it means you understand the other side of the coin from governing is politics. And if you can't be successful at politics, you never get the chance to govern. That's absolutely right. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, Stan Paris coming and, and asking you to be his chief of staff. When you get, you know, higher up on the heap there to that point where you're now the top staffer in the office, you're running the shop. How does the job change from when you were, you know, one of the one of the staffers working their way up? Yeah, it's a great question because it's, uh, it's something that I think plagues a lot of people on the Hill is that for the first time you actually have to manage people. It's one thing if you're a great legislative uh, director, yeah, maybe you manage some people, but but you're good at gathering legislation. Or if you're a great press secretary, you're great at you know working press, and this is why your boss wants to promote you. Or maybe you're a good campaign manager. But what you discover is that managing on Capitol Hill is completely different than any of those things, and that in the end, your success is based on the success of the people who are working for you. I mean, you really have two objectives. You, you have to achieve the goals that your boss gives you, and you have to retain your best people. Uh, too often, people on the Hill sacrifice one for the other. And my the biggest discovery was I had to learn how to manage people, which is not you know inherently given to people. I think some people have good instincts, but it's a very learnable skill. And uh, I think that was the greatest thing I learned as a chief of staff, sometimes <laughs> through mistakes uh, and other times, just as the experience went on, you, you realize that uh, just like in the tech business or any other knowledge-oriented business, your people are your most valuable resource. And if you take care of them, you, they'll do a good job. As somebody who has uh, who has had to learn that that lesson of how to manage people, I will say that I I wholeheartedly agree that it is a skill and it is a muscle that you build. Uh, it is mm-hmm. not... Uh, Maybe there are some people who are naturals at it, but it's uh, it's it's definitely a learned a learned ability. Um, twenty years you spent twenty years in the on the house side uh, in that first kind of run on the hill, or almost twenty years, and uh, you know that's that's a long time to be in one place. And obviously, yeah. you were you were changing offices and working for different members during that time. But how do you make sure that you're continuing to advance, not just in terms of climbing the career ladder, but also, you know, personally feeling like you're continuing to learn and grow, even, you know, when the scenery stays largely the same. Is the Hill just such a dynamic environment that that's not really a problem? Or is there something that you did um, kind of of your own volition to, to make sure you are keeping on moving forward? You know, I think part of the danger of new employees on the Hill is I think they just have to be very careful and never make a mistake. Uh, and that's not a way to get ahead, and it's also a way to get very bored very quickly, is you got to take on new things, even things you're uncomfortable with, or even things that you might not know a lot about when you start, and then push new projects, and then kind of persuade your boss that they should go down that path. Uh, one of the things I remember getting involved in in uh, 1993 was a brand new member, Jim Talent from Missouri, uh, and what we... What was going on was that Bill Clinton had just been elected president, and he said, do you want to uh, change welfare? Uh, and sort of the Democrat Party had entered, uh, who was a majority at the time, had entered a, a bill. They were doing it. Uh, 
And we had an idea for to make the bill better. And everyone sort of poo-pooed us. So as a freshman, he introduced this bill. Uh, you know, we and I, I end up meeting with all sides, outside groups and think tanks. And we called up all the byline reporters. And eventually the bill he introduced became the Republican portion of the contract with America, which eventually led to uh, the reform of the welfare system uh, that Bill Clinton signed. Granted, the bill changed many times from the time we first introduced it to the time it was signed into law. But here's something that freshmen weren't even supposed to do, that by being, you know, by pushing a little bit, I was able to help influence the office to move forward and do something that was you know, really important. You worked as chief of staff to, as I said, three members, all from very different places, um, mm. Northern Virginia, Southern California, and St. Louis. Um, how does that geographic difference, does that change the job, and if at all? And, and what did you learn from representing those really different you know, areas and groups of people that you've been able to take with you into the roles that you've had since? Well, one thing I learned was that if you have to go visit a congressional district, San Diego was the one to do. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they were very different because the personalities are so different. You know, Northern Virginia, this is, you know, your local congressman for the for Congress. So I never left. You would go to the work during the day and then you'd be home at the grocery store. And once people knew where you worked, they would start asking you about politics. So that was kind of interesting. It never stopped. California was interesting because you're managing someplace that's operating three hours behind, which means that when you're working from nine to 12 in the morning, you know, there's, you know, you, you have no contact with your district office, but they want to stay until eight o'clock at night uh, be, to do their work uh, and talk to you or even later uh, because that's the hour, the, the time change is different. Not to mention California politics is its own unique thing. It wasn't quite so uh, dominated by one party back then. Like Pete Wilson was the governor. Uh, they, they had Republican senators. It, it was actually a competitive party for a while there, uh, it, which it isn't today. And Missouri is different because it's just a gr- different group of people in the Midwest. Uh, what was very interesting was that our district was a, a suburban district, very highly educated, very, uh, uh, you had Boeing in there, had 14,000 defense employees working for them. Uh, but when he ran for Senate, all of a sudden we had a huge agriculture component and I had to learn agriculture for the first time in my life. This New York boy, you know, had to learn all about you know pork prices and, and corn and ethanol and everything else like that. So you're constantly learning of the, about the people your boss is representing. Uh, and the more you learn that, the more successful you are at serving them effectively. Um, in 2001, you leave the Hill briefly to become vice president of, of government affairs for American Water. After so long you know, on the Hill, that had to be a, a tough decision to make. What led you to ultimately decide that it was time for you to kind of make that jump, uh, leave the Hill? And, and why do you think, you know, obviously you weren't there for a very long time. Why do you think the government affairs side ultimately didn't end up being the right long-term fit for you? You know, it's a, a, that's also a great question because it's a big change, you know, because, you know, my boss lost the race for governor. So I had to get a job in the real world, which is kind of frightening. <laughs> and, uh, and I went and I was the, the vice president of government affairs and I was on the executive committee. And uh, the first time they mentioned ROI, I, I thought they meant Republicans or independents. <laughs> and, and so I ended up getting my MBA out of self-defense. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I, I, and there was an interesting thing by getting the MBA. I, I didn't need the credential. I needed the information. 
But when talent won the Senate race, two years later, it was a special election. Um, I went back to the, the Senate, but I then continued finishing my degree in my MBA and applying business systems to congressional offices. Uh, and it turned out to be a very valuable thing. Not only did I think it make me a much better chief of staff in the Senate, uh, it's allowed me to help other congressional offices at the Congressional Institute become focus on how you manage an office properly, like a business. Uh, it's not exactly the same. You can't make an exact comparison, but you can be a lot more efficient and a lot smarter about the way you manage people uh, if you apply some of the basic ideas that people get when they get their MBA. So it, it turned out very valuable. I, I enjoyed it, what I did. I mean, it was great. We are, it was environmentally uh, concerned company that worried about clean water, right? But they also worried about delivering water, uh, which in the United States, we don't do a lot of private sector water delivery. It's mostly municipal, mm. unlike Europe, ironically, which is much more uh, private sector based in their water delivery. Uh, and so you could focus on this, but you know, you're, I was focused on one issue at a time and I'd been used to dealing with you know, 20 or 30 issues. And, uh, it was great, but just wasn't as, as interesting for me. It paid very well, I have to say, but I think the excitement of working in the Senate was just uh, too strong an attraction for me. So I was very happy to go back and, and start working on the Hill again. Yeah, you mentioned that you, you come back to Congress in, in 2002 uh, as the chief of staff for your old boss, Jim Talent, who just been elected to the Senate from Missouri. Um, mm -hmm. You'd obviously worked with Senator Talent before, uh, so there was a lot of familiarity there personally. But you are now doing it in a slightly different environment on the other side of the Capitol. What was that transition like? Was there a learning curve there in terms of adapting to the Senate? Or did you pretty much have it figured out having worked in the House for, for so long? No, it's two completely different environments. A great question, Steve. Because what happens in the, the House, everything is based on the group you belong to. Because, it, because one individual House member has no power at all, no matter what party they're in. They form their power by forming coalitions. Uh, so maybe groups like the Progressive Caucus or the Freedom uh, Council or, or uh, Freedom Caucus or, or other groups can gain power because they can put together a, a bunch of members that can maybe influence the final outcome or a vote or whether or not your own party's leadership can bring it up. The Senate is really every man for themselves and every woman uh, because each individual senator has enormous power. Uh, it was great for Jim Talent because he was such a personable guy. He was able to work. He would never introduce a bill, for instance, unless he had a Democrat co-sponsor, uh, which nowadays would be seen as treason, I suppose. But <laughs> and this wasn't all that long ago. Uh, but that was the, he, he had very good style for working with individual members. I mean, Chuck Schumer, and he introduced a bill about six months before Chuck Schumer was raising, you know, millions of dollars to throw him out of office <laughs> in the 2006 election. But But he could separate that. And that's how successful senators do it. It's you know because of the hold and because of the fact that you command such media attention in a way that you never did in the House. Uh, you're you're much more of an individual office operation, and coalitions tend to be ad hoc and, and temporary. Uh, unlike the House, where people have to form lasting relationships and coalitions to have any real significant power at all. Senator Talent, you mentioned the 2006 election. He ultimately loses his reelection bid in that Democratic wave of 2006 to, to Claire McCaskill. And in 2007, you become the president of the Congressional Institute, which is obviously a role that you still hold today. Uh, for those who, who don't know, tell our audience just a little bit about what the Congressional Institute is and, and what it does and why that was such an appealing next stop for you. You've obviously you know, put down some serious roots there 13 years, uh, 13 years later now. Yeah, it's uh, it, there's so many great 
aspects of this. I mean, the, the Institute itself, just a little background, was formed 33 years ago uh, when Bob Michael asked uh, the private sector to raise the money to do member retreats. Because in his view, if the members were going to go off and, and, and to a remote location, have a retreat, it shouldn't be paid for by the taxpayer dollars. So he wanted to raise private sector dollars so he could do retreats. And so for the first few years, it's really all the Congressional Institute did was just host the annual members retreat. Uh, by the time I got there, we started to expand it dramatically and do staff retreats, mostly for training and educational stuff, legislative director and communication director retreats. I do individual office retreats for members of Congress in their home districts. We sponsored the Congressional Art Competition, which if you ever walk down that hallway between the, the Longworth Building and the Capitol, you see all those pictures on the wall. That's something we do. It's a bipartisan thing we do uh, to sponsor high school artists in the Capitol. Uh, we do a lot of writing on procedural issues, which normally you think might be um, boring, but look at packing the court and and changing the filibuster Senate. These are procedural issues that are, are major, major issues in this presidential election, or in certainly a senatorial election. Uh, so procedure is pretty important. We don't normally take stands on, on particular political issues, but we do take stands on how to improve Congress and, and how to reform the institution to make it work better. Uh, so we tend to be very dedicated to that. Uh, one of the things I think that I enjoyed about it personally was that, one, I didn't have to campaign anymore, which, you know, when you're running for re-election to the Senate, you had a fundraiser for breakfast, a fundraiser for dinner, and, uh, and uh, you know, a two, fund yeah, two fundraisers at lunchtime. And so you had to, you, you're constantly doing this work in terms of your, uh, the campaigning and your long hours, and you get home at 11 o'clock at night consistently. Well, I was found I was able to still work at the Congressional Institute with individual members of Congress, a lot more of them now, but I was also usually home for dinner most times too. Mm -hmm. And so it, it expanded my ability to use my experience to help members be successful, particularly the younger members who were just getting there. Um, at the same time, it also allowed me to focus on some more academic things I wanted to do, such as get a degree in legislative affairs. Uh, you know, but also work on writing a book and and working on the ideas of congressional reform, which I really enjoy. And I think shortly after you moved to the Congressional Institute, around 2008 is the time when you find your way to GW. Is that right? Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> Part of the reason that motivated me was that in 2006, when Talent had lost, uh, you know, I, it was a bad year. Republicans lost control of the Senate and the House. So it wasn't exactly a great time to be looking for a job. Uh, and I remember talking to different people in the private sector and said, well, we don't want chiefs of staff. You know, they, they just manage things. We want legislative people who are experts in their issues. And I said, well, how do you think the legislative people get anything done? <laughs> it's the work we do working with other members. It didn't seem to work and persuade them. And I was determined never again to be told that I didn't know enough on legislative affairs to be successful at helping uh, other entities. So... Um, it, part of that was I just really wanted the in-depth knowledge. What I discovered once I got there was how much I loved it. Um, the interesting thing is when you work on the Hill, you learn just enough to get through each individual day. So if the president issues an executive order, you learn just enough about the executive orders that you can make a press statement, pro or con, whatever. Uh, and then you move on to another issue the next day. And so you have this uh, wide breadth of knowledge, but it's only an inch deep. Suddenly, when you go to graduate school and you get to study this stuff, all these things that you've been working on all these years start to come to, to shine a new light. And you start to understand the depths of the issues. And, you know, 
uh, one of the things, uh, executive orders was amazing because it went back to George Washington's time. Some executive orders were scribbled on maps uh, before they had a process. We were ac- accidentally under a, a state of emergency for 40 years because no one ever repealed Franklin Roosevelt's emergency declaration by executive order. And all of a sudden I was learning all these things and I said, wow, it's fascinating. And I just loved it. And so it was it was great, one, because I wanted to get broaden my knowledge of Congress, which is important since I was working with Congress every day. But I had to say I just ended up loving it so much that it was almost more hobby than than education. You obviously, you know, came to GSPM after having a long and extremely successful career on the Hill, being in the rooms where it all happens. Um which is not kind of the the perspective of your normal GW student, I would say, as someone who who has uh, attended GSPM. They tend to be, you know, early early on in their career. Uh, how did that change your your GSPM experience? What was that like uh, for you approaching it, coming from you know a different a, a very different point in your career than most of your your fellow students? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, one, it lets you know who the good professors were really quick. <laughs> And, and and some were, you know, not some, maybe one or two were kind of insecure about the fact that I, I may have known even more than they did on the subject. Uh, but the good professors relished it because now they had something to bounce things off of. And, and so the discussions were much more lively and, and much more enjoyable. Uh, and also it was nice because I could share a lot that helped other students, you know, understanding something by giving an example of what had happened uh, in my career at some point in the Hill to illustrate a point that the... Uh, that the professor had been making. And so I found myself sort of like sort of half teaching and half learning, um, you know, but enjoying every moment of it, you know, uh, and, you know, you have some professors that really challenge you like Dr. Johnson, when he was there, gosh, he, you know, he, he, his ideology and mine were probably about 180 degrees apart, <laughs> but he was a great professor and we had wonderful conversations and, and, you know, and you could tell that he always respected my opinion, even if he didn't agree with it, or at least he gave me good grades, even though <laughs> he didn't agree with what I was saying. Uh, but that was a kind of a give and take that you liked because it was happening in a way that wasn't in this polarized atmosphere where people are trying to protect themselves politically or, or maybe coming up with a position that might be disingenuous academically, but very advantageous politically. And so I, I love the environment, uh, the academic environment to be discussing some of these things. You've now taught at GSPM in addition to, to being an alum yourself. What do you think is the most valuable thing that students can take away from their time at GSPM uh, that will help them succeed in their career? Obviously, there's the skills that you learn and the, and the, the, GW net, the GSPM network. What do you think is the most valuable thing that, that folks can take away uh, from the GSPM experience? You know, there, there are two things that are really important in Washington. That is access and unique information uh you work on the hill you got access right i mean lobbyists struggle to get access it's one of their big things they try to do but the the hill you have the access now what it is is the information you have that you share that's unique that you can't get other places is what makes you very valuable and so the real advantage of certainly in the legislative affairs program where where i was is that you learn a depth of knowledge about Congress and the White House and and particularly maybe a couple of issues that you're particularly interested in that makes you invaluable to your member of Congress. Because, you know, anyone can quote a CRS briefing or write a memo, but someone who's actually studied this issue can talk about what happened in the past when they tried certain things. You know, how does the reconciliation process work in the Budget Act? These are things that you now have gives you unique value to your member of Congress. It makes you a true asset so that the member of Congress can do a lot more things too. 
So I would say the most important thing the students can do is is to really focus on gaining that unique information that's just not widely available on the outside. And you're getting it, generally speaking, this is what I love about the GSPM program, from practitioners, people who have actually already done it, uh, or people who have been involved in it for a long time. And so it's not necessarily a, an academic bent, but it is an academic discussion with people who've done it. And so you get the benefit of their experience and practicality as well as all this information that you never had before. So it's just a a great experience for someone who wants to work on the Hill. I just wish the Hill had tuition reimbursement like every other agency of the federal government, Mm -hmm. but that's a separate topic. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say is the most rewarding part uh, of your work at, at the Congressional Institute and your current job? What, What gets you out of bed in the morning and drives you to do what you do every day? You know, I think the interesting thing is that I really do help other chiefs and staffers and members now to a large degree do their job better. And I think uh, that to me is the most rewarding thing because I think I'm helping the country function better at a time of such high polarization, at a time when people are so down on the institution of Congress, because I really believe in it. Uh, that coupled with the work I've been able to do in congressional reform, which helped lead to the formation of the most of the Select Committee on Modernization uh, that they had this year, uh, and hopefully will one day lead to, to another joint committee on congressional reform, uh, can help protect an institution that has kind of suffered badly uh, over the last 20, 30 years, and especially compared to the power of the presidency. And so, you know, what gets me out of bed every morning is a chance to help the legislative branch be a more effective part of government. And that sounds cornish, corny, but but you think about it, is that you know every country has an executive, right? Uh, they have a president, a prime minister, they have an emperor or empress, a king or queen, the chairman of the Politburo, or what have it. Um, but only functioning democracies have legislatures. And why is because the legislature is what keeps the check on executive power. And if you don't have a check on executive power, you will always inevitably drift towards authoritarianism. So it's really, really important. And uh, so the idea to help maybe Congress regain some of its Article One powers and, and at least raise these issues so they're thinking about them uh, gives me an enormous amount of satisfaction. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned Congress, you know, as a in its role as as an as an institution. This is a question I ask, you know, everybody who appears on this podcast Trust in institutions, if you look at kind of the public opinion data, trust in institutions kind of writ large is at an all-time low, uh, and particularly yeah. among young people. And it's not just Congress, obviously, but Congress is certainly not particularly trusted or popular. What advice would you give to a young person on, A, you know, why they should even bother to get involved in any of this at all? And B, how they can find their own voice or path through which they can contribute to and participate in our democracy. Yeah, wow, that's a great question. You know, when I was up, uh, I had a fellowship at Harvard in 2017, um, where I got to work with students just all the time and trying to persuade them to come work on the Hill. Biggest problem was they could all command a lot greater salaries than (laughs) the the average new legislative assistant. Right. But I think they were interested in getting into politics, at least after they'd been successful in the other side of their career. Uh, But I always tell them that, look, the institution is as good as the people that work for it. If good people who are smart and motivated and care about things don't get involved, it just ends up making sure that the people who are running it are, you know, our second, second best or third best. I mean, it need, we need our brightest and best to work in our government, uh, in the legislatures, 
And the pe- we need people who can communicate well and people who can be innovative in their thinking. Um, you know, I think it's a younger person's job working on the Hill because of the hours and because of the point you are in your life usually. Uh, one of the things that becomes difficult to stay because of the salaries, unless you're at the very top, you know, don't rise up that quickly and you can earn so much more in the private sector. And so they, they pick people off somewhere around their tw- late 20s, early 30s. But I'd like to see the Congress work hard to keep these people to stay so that they can continue to use their experience for good. Uh, the most important thing is that it really does matter. I mean, without the U.S. Congress, I mean, you know, the United States is not what it is, what, what it could be. Uh, it, it needs that to keep the president in check and to spur innovation. One of the most unfortunate things about Congress lately has been the, the dysfunction that has been occurring, which, of course, discourages people from getting involved in the first place, where it just doesn't pass anything. Or the only thing that happens are negotiated by one leader in the House and one leader in the Senate and the president. And you end up with 533 observers and, you know, and, and two negotiators representing on the Congress. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Members of Congress are supposed to legislate. And one of the things I remember as a young staffer back in the 80s uh, is that we actually legislated. You could go down to the floor and offer an amendment. You could write it on the back of a piece of paper and and hand it in. And you had an amendment that the Congress had to vote on. You could be creative and innovative. And this is the kind of thing we need people to to get back to doing. Uh, The Congress needs to change. I mean, if it doesn't change, it's not going to be very attractive to people. but if you, but you know, uh, here's another story I tell uh, that I think I, I had um, uh, a young staffer in the Senate who was an agriculture staff uh, member, and she worked hard. And, but when town lost, she was 29 years old, and I called her up one day and said, "Katie, is uh, uh, the best job you can get after working in the United States uh, Senate uh, a secretary?" She said, "Mark, secretary of the state of Missouri's agriculture system is not a bad job." <laughs> She was Secretary of Agriculture, 29 years old. I mean, can you imagine that in any corporate world, moving up so quickly? But because she was good, you know, it remains a merit-based system. Uh, politics is one place where if you're good at what you do, your boss will keep you. He'll find some way to keep it. It doesn't matter what degree you have, what, what you look like, um, what your religion is or anything else. If you make the boss look good, they want to keep you in the family. Uh, of course, what you want to do is increase your value so you become an increasingly valuable member of that family. and the, and you get the loyalty of the boss as well as your loyalty to them too. So it's a great place to work. You, you, it is a merit-based system where you can move up, you know, in your career as, as you do good work. Uh, and it's a place where you can change the world in ways that, um, you know, just you know, other places can't do. One other story I'll tell about a student was I had one young lady who was a, uh, volunteered. We won a special election. So, you know, we moved in the office and she said, well, I'll answer the phones for you. I'll volunteer. And she did. She was a student at George Washington University. Um, uh, she was majoring in Latin American affairs, which I, I'm afraid she never did get to use <laughs> because we put her to work so quickly. But here she was. And so we, we started the office and I hired her as a staff assistant. She was pretty good for a few months. She did that. And she started asking the legislative system if they had letters she could answer. And she moved up to the position of legislative correspondent. Uh, Talent wanted to introduce a bill on methamphetamines. It was a big problem in Missouri because half of all rural fires were caused by meth labs blowing up. Uh, And it was becoming a a major drain on, not only was it dangerous to people, but it was a major drain on the fire departments, emergency services. 
and so he introduced a bill along with Diane Feinstein from California on methamphetamines. But the problem is he said to the staff is, look, I know you're all working on these things. He was very goal oriented and everyone had their goals and they're working on it. He said, so who, who can give something up to take this? And this young lady said, well, uh, I'll, I'll take it on if, if you help me. You know, and so, okay, we did. We showed her how to write dear colleague letters. And she called, I mean, she called one guy at Judiciary Committee and he basically said, beat it, kid, right? So Talent talked to Arlen Specter, who at the time was Republican and the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. All of a sudden, the staffer calls her back and says, I'm sorry, I, 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 I was having a bad day. What is it you needed from me? Hmm. And so the congressman helped her succeed. And at 25 years old, she did this. And now the reason why you have to sign a log to get pseudofedrin at the drugstores because of the legislation this young lady worked on at the age of 25. It helped stop the manufacture of meth labs. We, they still get meth from Mexico across the border. But this one piece of legislation had a significant impact on reducing the number of meth labs in the United States, uh, the ability of people to easily get the components to make methamphetamines. She's 25 years old. Where in the world can you do that at 25 years old outside of Congress? What a great opportunity is for young people to, to really get in and change things if they're willing to work hard. Last question. There are a lot of opinions about what makes for a successful career. Obviously, you've had, had a very successful career to this point. In your experience, what have you found to be most important? Is it what you know or is it who you know or is it some combination of both? You know, it's uh, really both. Uh, what you know is very important. Because that determines your value, that determines your place in things, and how and how willing people are to listen to you. Uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike respect people who know what they're talking about and learn from them. You know, they they may have to you know take opposing sides on an issue, but they really respect people who learn a lot and and know what they're doing about. So, good education and constant learning is very very important. But it also has to do, it's, it's kind of the opposite of the person who gets elected is the staffer on the Hill, is that your greatest success is in serving other people and, and, and helping them to be successful too. Certainly for a chief of staff. The more you help your staff be successful, the better chief of staff you are. Even if you can't point to specific accomplishments you had at the end of the year, you can take credit for all the good work you helped other people accomplish. Uh, and so when you're a good staffer, you help other people look good. You know, the whole idea that knowledge is power sort of died out. It's a, a dinosaur because now people can get knowledge anyway, right? That, that You're more like a, a rock and the water just goes around you. And now you get left uphill and everyone else is still going downhill. It's how much knowledge you can share, how much of a value you can provide to your boss and to your colleagues and to other offices. Uh, so how you treat people and how you respect them and work with them is also the key. So you got to have unique information, but you also have to be a good person with good social skills who is willing to share what you know uh, and to get something done that you really care about. Wise words from a wise man, Mark Strand, president of the Congressional Institute. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us today and to share a little bit of your wisdom. You know, Steve, thank you. And thank you for doing this. I mean, the Graduate School of Political Management is such a unique thing here in Washington, D.C., that can provide unique value to people who want to work on the Hill or in the orbit around the Hill. And uh, what you're doing here, I think, is a really good thing. So thank you for doing this. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Take care.